All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the 10th day of September 2019. I do like to remind you each week that I am the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And uh, we are having, uh, notwithstanding a down day today, we are having a very good time in the junior exploration sector these days. I just got back from a uh, from the Metals Investor Forum in Vancouver, where I learned of a number of new stories that I expect to be bringing to my subscribers in the near future. But in addition, of course, to the ones that we already have that are very exciting, not the least of which a couple of sponsors to this show, uh, Great Bear Resources, Novo Resources, uh, Klondike Gold. Uh, Randison Mining, and uh, there will be others coming along, I'm sure, in the near future. But a lot of great things to look at with gold. Well, it's dipped a little bit below 1500 today, but um, I don't think that's going to last for long. We'll have to hear what uh, some others on this show have to say a little later in the hour. So it's miningstocks.com to go to to sign up for my newsletter, miningstocks.com. Also, like to encourage you to check out Chen Lin's letter, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And uh, to sign up for that letter, you can go to ChenPicks.com. ChenPicks.com. Chen has done extraordinarily well uh, with his investments over the years and is sharing his, uh, his insights and his intelligence with his paid subscribers. And I do want to thank all of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel, and also uh, encourage you to send along whatever comments you have about this show to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com, questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. And we do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. I just mentioned who they are, but I will mention them once again. Klondike Gold, Novo Resources, Radisson Mining Resources, and Great Bear Resources. And by the way, I was just in Vancouver and interviewed Chris Taylor, the CEO of Great Bear Resources, one of the most spectacular new gold discoveries in recent years. And uh, when that link is available, I will be sending it out to the list of people uh, who, um, well, people that are on my list that hear about this radio show every uh, every week. Um, I'm so we're very pleased. I'm very pleased to have these companies as sponsors um, because they are doing very well. All four of them, uh, actually, uh, I think uh, Novo Resources, uh, Quentin Henning will be with me next week to give us an update on the Edgina project that is looking. Very exciting. Oh, the stock isn't really reflecting it these days, but if you watch what is really taking place on the ground, uh, it's sort of the boring aspect of uh, mining when the companies develop and uh, outline a project, a, a deposit, then uh, how do you get into production, producing it profitably? And that's where 
Novo is working on very hard right now on its uh, one of three projects in uh, in in Australia. That is the Edgina project, and uh, Quentin will tell us some more about that next week. I've titled today's show "Preparing for a World Run Amok." John Rubino and Michael Oliver are my guests uh, this week. Michael will join me in the second segment of this week, and we'll have a bit more time than we normally have when he joins me during this segment. Um, I've t- the title of today's show uh, resulted from recent interviews that I've had a couple of weeks ago with Alistair McLeod and last week with David Stockman. Alistair provided what seems to me the most rational dynamic for causing the existing dollar-centric global trading architecture uh, to collapse or at least to be taken out of uh, that status. And, and that um, dynamic is negative interest rates in the reserve currency, which is far more critical to the world's existing currency structure than if a lesser non-reserve currency like the yen or the euro uh, experienced negative rates, which of course they are over much of the treasury curves of both of those countries. I think in fact in Germany, the entire treasury curve uh, is negative. Alistair pointed out that since all the commodities in the world are quoted in dollars and because all commodities have a positive time preference value, if central banks actually take money away from you when you lend to it, there would be no reason at all to lend that money to, this, uh, to buy treasuries, to, buy, to lend it to the governments in buying treasuries. Uh, rather, in order to protect yourself and your own interest, you would trash your dollars, which are costly to hold in that case and uh, exchange them for commodities that actually do provide positive carry, positive preference, time, time preference. In fact, uh, as, as Alistair pointed out, gold normally uh, has a time preference collectively across the markets of 1.5% to 2%. Um, so actually, um, you know, we are looking now at um, this is why the bullion banks, according to Alistair, of why we are seeing the rise in gold prices, notwithstanding today's pullback a bit, uh, it works something like this with the bullion banks. When the U.S. dollar interest rates are above gold's one-year lease rate of about 1.5% to 2%, the bullion banks were borrowing gold from central banks, selling it into the markets, driving the price of gold down, of course, and using the proceeds to buy U.S. treasuries at, say, 4% or higher. Now, if you those banks, those same banks, add some leverage into that equation, they can make huge profits, and indeed, that's what they've been doing over the years. It seemed like a very good trade as long as U.S. interest rates remained above the positive, um, that is, the interest rates for, uh, for gold. Uh, but now, with the U.S. dollar rates below the lease rate for gold, that gold carry trade is no longer profitable for these bullion banks. It's, in fact, it's actually beginning to cost them money. And if U.S. interest rates continue to head towards zero and then into negative ter- territory, the Gold carry trade will cost the bullion banks tons of money, probably hundreds of billions of dollars if they don't unwind in time. Of course, there is no doubt uh, a huge fight is taking place among central bankers behind the scenes. We just recently heard William Dudley, formerly of the New York Fed, suggest that Chairman Powell should do all that he can to make sure Donald Trump is not reelected, noting that the trade war with China is forcing the Fed to lower rates. Perhaps Dudley perceives the, di- the same dynamics that Alistair McLeod noted, although I'm not sure that's the case, but neither is Alistair, actually. Uh, but perhaps Dudley realizes that, in any event, the dollar's reserve status is in trouble if U.S. interest rates continue to head lower for one reason or another. As people around the world seek positive yields to carry with their time preference values, 
money is flowing into the United States. And that, that is the dynamic that suggests that uh, the interest rates in the U.S. are inevitably heading lower. We're seeing across the yield curve, for example, in Denmark, Germany, Netherlands, and in Finland, those four countries, across the entire yield curve, their treasuries are in negative territory. And for most of the rest of Europe, in Japan, uh, Austria, we're looking at um, Ireland, Spain, uh, those countries all have negative yields uh, through the at least through the 10-year period. Uh, and so most of the world is experiencing negative yields. Now, what that's happening, what's happening is that we are seeing a lot of people, a lot of, uh, say, pre- uh, uh, pension funds and, and just plain people that need positive yield are, are borrowing or actually lending money into the United States uh, to buy not only U.S. Treasuries but also investment-grade bonds. In fact, something like 94% of the investment-grade bonds in the world are denominated now in U.S. dollars. As so as foreign money seeks positive yield, it drives interest rates lower and lower here in the United States as well. So with central banks around the world having destroyed the capital markets with massive money created out of thin air over, over decades now, it seems that the U.S. Is, des- is destined, it would seem, for negative rates to occur here as well. And even Alan Greenspan said so on September 4th on CNBC he opined that it's just a matter of time before the U.S. rates go negative as well. Well, I don't believe Alan Greenspan has predicted that the dollar's days are numbered. The dollar's days as the world's reserve currency are numbered as a result of that. But another central banker has, and I'm talking about Mark Carney of the Bank of England. He calls for a global monetary system to replace the dollar. He said so just a few weeks back at Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And if we go back and look as far back as 1988, The Economist put out a special article suggesting that by 2018, the existing, um, the existing dollar, or actually they said uh, a petrol yuan futures markets may very well, um, well actually the, the Economist said that they, that they expect uh, that we will see a new currency by the year 2018. I'm suggesting that some of the things that are evolving right now, such as the opening of the petrol yuan futures markets uh, and the gold trading, uh, international gold trading out of, uh, out of China, uh, and the buildup of tremendous amounts of gold in China and Russia and other countries that are basically uh, want to see the dollar's demise uh, is something that we should be keeping an eye on. And so we have now, again, top-level uh, central bankers suggesting that the dollar's days are numbered as the world's reserve currency. And uh, this is anybody that studied history shouldn't be terribly surprised by this because if we go back and look, actually the United States has had the world's reserve currency as long as some other world powers in the past. It's longer than the Netherlands, longer than Portugal, for example. Uh, some countries like Spain... France and Britain have held on to reserve currency status a bit longer than the the United States. But there's no doubt about it that uh, the dollar's days, as the world's reserve currency would seem to be, uh, well, it's not going to last forever. And there certainly seems to be some handwriting on the wall uh, that would suggest its days may be over sooner rather than later. Uh, I think a a quote at the end of an article written by Alistair McLeod on August 29th, uh, that really suggests the dollar, the end of dollar hegemony. And let me just quote this is the end of an article that Alistair wrote titled Negative Interest Rates and Gold 
as I say, uh, dated August 29, 2019. He said, and I quote, instead of central banks stabilizing the system of monetary easing, or stabilized by monetary easing, the easing itself will generate the crisis. The development of a problem in gold markets, driving gold price rapidly higher while some banks are caught napping, is likely to anticipate a wider financial and systemic crisis. Therefore, with gold's sudden move higher, coupled with its persistent strength, we can be reasonably certain that we are seeing the start of the dismantling of the dollar-based monetary system, and that gold has much further to gold, end of quote. So, indeed, if that does happen, uh, you can look for a lot of the markets in the world to be thrown into chaos, and certainly the benefactor would figure to be gold and probably silver as well. But we don't know for sure that the U.S. dollar rates will definitely be heading into negative territory. Um, I don't think we know that for sure, do we? Uh, might there be laws of uh, nature that um, will keep the dollar as the world's reserve currency and, and, and keep the dollar in positive territory and keep that as the world's reserve currency longer? Those questions and more will be posed to Michael Oliver, who will be with me right after the break. So, uh, well, we do have to go to that break now, so don't go away. We'll be right back uh, with Michael Oliver to ask him about that and several other items that I have on my mind. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm glad to have Michael Oliver with me for an entire segment today. As always, I'd like to remind you to go to Michael's website. It's olivermsa.com, olivermsa.com. Since 1992, Momentum Structural Analysis, or MSA, has provided unique technical research to the financial industry on uh, banks, RIAs, hedge funds, mutual funds, as well as individual investors. 
And so uh, Michael's research covers all four exchange-traded asset categories, stocks, commodities, debt, foreign exchange. He talks about those markets uh, briefly here on this show, but in order to really take advantage of, uh, of Michael's work, you need to subscribe to his letter, uh, which, uh, which I do. It's, a, it's an excellent letter. It's just absolutely, I think, uh, it's irreplaceable for me in my way of thinking because of the way I conduct my business. I am not a trader. I want to know if I'm in on the right side of a market longer term. Uh, you know, day to day, things are going to go against you, of course. But um, I don't want to be around on the wrong side of the market when the thing when the thing really turns in the opposite direction. So, but you know, if you go to Michael's website right now, you can watch a video there in which he discusses what he believes is the biggest trade of the century, which uh, it. it um, it's derived from his uh, unorthodox style of technical analysis, which is another reason I like to have him. I mean, if he's not just another technical analyst. He has developed his own proprietary methods of tracking the market, which I think makes him very special. Well, he's special uh, just not just because he makes uh, he's, he does it differently, but because he's been successful. And uh, at least from my perspective, it's, it's the best technical analyst I have ever used. So, Michael, thanks for joining me again. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. It's always good to have you, uh, and it's always good to tell our listeners once again, it's OliverMSA.com. You know, first of all, I'm just wondering, Michael, if, just to try to entice people to go there and look, uh, you have a video there that's very informative. Not only do you spell out the uh, the market that you think is the trade of the century, but also uh, you explain your methodology, which applies not just to that markets, but to all the markets that you cover. Um could you give our listeners a hint as to what market you're talking about? What is the market that you're looking at? The trade well, it's, of the uh, there's always good trades, and sometimes they're in obscure markets. You know, there's nothing wrong with gra- grabbing those. But <laughs> uh, the stock market has the U.S. stock market has set up a momentum structure, meaning when you detrend its price, everybody looks at a price chart when they look at the yeah. trends. And, but we, what we do is measure the price action in its relationship to moving averages, uh, usually long-term moving averages. And mm-hmm. it creates an oscillator. And the oscillator mm-hmm. looks different from the price chart. It mm-hmm. shows the breathing up and down of the market in relation to that average. Mm-hmm. Well, in this case, what I showed was uh, two historic markets that we all know about in 1929 and 1987. And they both shared certain very common attributes when you looked at momentum, not the price charts. Uh-huh. And... Um, there were very large momentum structures, three and a half years wide. In other words, where when you looked at the momentum chart, the market kept coming down to the mean, the zero line, the 36-month average in this case, and holding. So, mm-hmm. you know, it became like a ritual. And it did it three times over a three-and-a-half-year period. So we look at the price chart, it's like an upward-curving arch, arc, rather, and uh, you, you can't draw any good trend lines because it's, it's not multiple lows lining up on a trend. It's just an upward curve, sort of confusing to analyze. But when you look at momentum, it's a flat floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. In fact, if you just looked at momentum and treated it as a price chart, you would, you, you would salivate uh, looking at the pending breakage structure. Mm-hmm. Well, they mm-hmm. broke it in, in uh, 29 and 87, and they didn't wait around for the end of the month to prove the case. They just went ahead and did it. But the structures were ripe, and they were big, and they were, uh, big in terms of the sideways duration of that structure. Mm-hmm. It's like having a bridge on the River Kwai. You know, it's a, uh-huh. you've got the, the, the pillars that support it, and if you attach a satchel bomb to each pillar, you can bring the bridge down. Well, it built its pillars, and they were clear. 
And mm-hmm. both markets, when you look at the momentum charts of those two historic events, they're the same. You can't tell mm. the difference between 29 and 87. Interesting. But those were structures that were developed when you plant, plotted price in relation to its three-quarter moving average. It's a fairly long-term average. It's, like, mm-hmm. it's almost like a 200-day average, okay, mm-hmm. in, in duration. But now we have a situation where we have a 10-year-wide annual momentum structure that's built on top of the 36-month average of the S&P. The, the, you remember the European debt crisis fell off in 2011 yeah. 12. Well, it landed sure. on that level and held back up mm-hmm. again. And then in 2016, it landed on it again early in the year and turned up again. Mm-hmm. And then it landed on it in December of last year with the same precision. It landed on it in 2016 and 2012 and turned up again. This mm-hmm. time when you turned up, when you made your new highs, marginally, by the way, above the highs of 2018 in terms of price, momentum was nowhere near reaching the levels that it had seen at the prior highs. So uh. it was non-confirming. So now we have this 10-year-wide bridge with three pillars planted at the zero line. And the market doesn't know it, because when you look at the price chart, you can't see this structure. It just isn't there. You just have this 10-year-old beast that is now floundering around up here. The momentum, though, is the structure. In order to break the structure, in other words, to break below the 36-month average, or even, uh, frankly, we even think getting 2% over will, will destroy it. But uh, it doesn't require a lot because that average is rising every month. It's rising mm-hmm. about a percent. So, for example, this month it's down in the mid-2600s. Well, you say, well, that's a safe distance below. Well, maybe it is, okay? Uh, it's rising, again, about a percent every month, and you don't want to ever visit that number again. Mm-hmm. Below this structure, you will not hold. Uh, the problem is that there there are a lot of fundamental analysts out there, major brokerage firms. Uh, Blackstone Group is one. Uh, Morgan Stanley is another. Uh, Wells Fargo, I think, uttered some statements as well, where they're doubtful of the sustainability of this move, and not that they're calling for a bear market, but a correction. You know, the yeah. happy word. Uh, well, we argue, and I argue in this this video, you can't have a correction. Because mm-hmm. the dimensions of what we consider a correction, you know, like 10%, 12%, that kind of thing, uh, yeah. you can't do that. You go that far, you're going to blow the bottom out of this thing. And right. that's what nobody realizes when they look at the price chart. They think, oh, we can have a nice correction. You know, no big deal. It's not going to break anything. After all, sure. what was the last major low we made? Below 2350 last December. <laughs> so if you drop down now to, oh, 26.50, you're not threatening that low. It's yet a higher low. Problem is, from annual momentum perspective, you're blowing up the bridge of the River Kwai. Uh-huh. So that's why we said this is the trade of a century, especially for the stock market, because this is the biggest structure we have ever seen in terms of long-term momentum under the stock market. And wow. when you build a structure like this, uh, our saying is, if you build it, they will come. Okay? <laughs> uh, that structure is yeah. built, and I think it's there for a purpose. We'll see. Uh, we're monitoring every month. We adjust our numbers. And now, obviously, that's not going to happen in a void. I mean, yeah. other markets are going to be doing things as well. Yeah, and, uh, for sure. We know what those markets are, don't we? You know, so. Yes, we sure do. Well, it's a long ways down there to the River Kwai, I think, huh? It's a long fall, well, if I recall. Only, right, the movement. A, you know, 300 points, and that's like 12%, and that number yeah. gets shorter every, every day in terms mm-hmm. of... Uh, you know, yeah. Every month, anyway, we adjust the numbers up. So if the market flounders around, the number that's going to bite it is coming up to it. Yeah. Uh, there's also some other trigger numbers between here and there that could get you down there. Yeah. Meaning, well, that was, 
You don't have to fight your way down there. We've got some other triggers not far below the current action that will begin a sell-off. Yeah. And it, it, once you begin to stumble, you might fall. Right. So. All right. Yeah. Well, this is why people should go there. They'll understand if the, this illustration really hammers home your methodology. I think, uh, you know, it, it should convince a lot of people that uh, of the of the soundness of your methodology. I think, and and then the proof is in the pudding, as they say as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Speaking of some of those other markets, uh, this morning I was reading a price analyst. I, I guess uh, that's what how you would characterize him. Uh, he was looking at the oil. In, at the oil markets and the treasury markets. And he said, yeah, we've seen a little decline in the oil market, which would have suggested that we would expect to see treasuries, uh, treasury yields fall as well. But they've fallen much, much further uh, than they should. And, and he's suggesting that, in fact, uh, we, should, we may be looking at something uh, that, that, in fact, uh, he's, his work is suggesting that we're likely to see not a continued decline in, in yields and rates, but actually, the opposite—that we're likely to see an upturn in the commodity markets—and uh, and it's going to be awfully hard to see rates continue to decline in that environment. What are you What are you seeing in terms of treasuries and uh, commodities in general? I know you've you've also you've also been pretty bullish uh, on commodities longer term, and I think uh, longer term at least bearish on treasuries. Right. Um, we we turned positive on treasuries last December. With an expectation of a pretty strong rally up to like 160, and it's gotten above there. Uh, in, we get bullish above 140. This is on the T-bond futures, 30-year bonds. Uh, that rally is getting questionable now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I know there's a consensus out there that and Greenspan said it the other day that uh, yeah. we're headed toward negative stuff. And, you know, maybe we are, maybe we're not. Uh, but we're getting a little technically suspicious of the sustainability of the T-bond rally, the drop in yields. Uh, though there is a conviction out there that they're going to continue that way. Uh, yeah. Not with us. Okay. Now, it's been coincident with the gold market, by the way. The, the bond surge and the gold surge were almost overlays of each other. Yeah. When you look at the price chart over the last you know, six months or so. Uh, but I think that will divorce itself as well at some point. And I suspect the divorce is going to come with T-bonds failing in this rally and turning back down, yields going back up. I think the trigger for that is something that nobody's talking about, nobody believes it's going to happen. In fact, they're concerned that the other is happening. The Bloomberg Commodity Index is, in our view, the best index to look at for commodities now. It is fairly balanced between the various commodity groupings. It's not overly energy-weighted, okay? So it's, it's a good cross-section. It's been going sideways, boringly, in a range from the low 70s to just above 90 for the last three years. Um, it buoyed off of its low uh, 72 area in early 2016. This is when gold bottomed. Okay, A lot of commodities made lows then, and we, it came up. Crude oil had a nice advance between 2016 low and last summer's highs uh, from like $26 up to 77 And then it collapsed down to 42 So the crude oil was one of its chief contributors to the Bloomberg Commodity Index moving up off of its low from the 2016 low. So was copper. Mm-hmm. Now, both of those markets have caved recently with the stock market right. drop in December, and they tend to swing with the stock market, those two. They're economically sensitive, quote-unquote. You know, we've been told that. Yes. I think that the crude oil now is situated in, such, in a way that it could turn up in a sustainable way. I'm not sure it's right now, but it has the structure to do it. And the Bloomberg Commodity Index has one of the biggest momentum bases I've seen it develop in a long time. My suspicion is that in the fourth quarter, 
just 15 days away, trading days, um, we could get a breakout in the Bloomberg Commodity Index. And it looks like the kind of breakout that could rush 20 to 25% to the upside rapidly. Now, that would shock people because nobody's yeah. looking for a commodity price boom. And it has a derailing effect on, on certain other assumptions. If your assumption is the Fed's going to be accommodative, mm-hmm. uh, and all of a sudden they get smacked in the face with a 25% boom in the commodity index, right? Uh, it's going to cause people to be fearful that the Fed is not going to be accommodative. Uh, right. And, of course, what will be happening to the stock market at that point? <laughs> and what will be happening to the bonds that everybody's buying, thinking we're going to zero inflation and zero right. rates? Right. So it's a disruptor. I would be watching the Bloomberg Commodity Index. Because uh, if it can break out, it's saying not just that copper and oil are going to rally, but the broader subsectors within the commodity complex are going to turn up. Mm-hmm. And that's not something that's happened over the last three years. It's been very selective. Yeah, uh, but now if, if in unison it turns, it could be a shock effect. Ah, absolutely. Nobody's expecting that. Very few people think in those terms, Michael. That's why we like to have you. You bring, you bring ideas that are not always uh, in sync with everybody else, and that's, uh, well, they're ideas that are well thought out. Just one one quick question, if you can answer in 30 seconds or so. Uh, we're seeing a bit of a pullback in gold. Are you worried at all that we'll... No, I'm, serious I'm, I'm very happy with what I'm seeing. We expected, uh, we put on, a, on the board... Uh, a low this week at 1485 we thought we'd probably see we got the 1487 today maybe we go a little lower silver's pulled back to the upper end of a range of support that we thought we would see this week uh 1775 to 1750 i think the low today is 1777 uh we don't think there's much to this sell off we think it's more of a congestion zone with ups mm-hmm. and downs within it uh and i i think that if if you're a bear on gold and you're expecting a sharp correction you better see it this week because if you end up Friday, closing gold anywhere around fifteen hundred, give or take. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not not fourteen fifty, but fifteen hundred, give or take five bucks or so. Then that's yeah. a non-event week, and I think that's the end of the downside pressure that we've seen for the last three or four weeks. All right, we'll have to leave it go at that. Thank you so much, Michael, again for your for your insights. Always welcome, always appreciated by our listeners, and uh, I would appreciate it if the listeners would uh, check out Michael's website as well, olivermsa.com, and seriously consider subscribing to his work. It will be well worth it if you're an investor of any size at all. Thank you so much, Michael, for being with us, and uh, look to do it again next week, hopefully. Thank you. Talk to all you right, then. folks. Well, uh, we do have to go now, but don't go away. John Rubino will be uh, joining me, and we're going to talk about some of these issues, negative interest rates, the chaos that may cause, or maybe there won't be negative interest rates. Michael's providing some reasons why that uh, trade may not be well advised. So we'll be right back with John Arena right after the break. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon Territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike Gold Rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. 
Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSX and GTBDF on the OTCQB, is a gold exploration company focused on their wholly owned Dixie project in the prolific Red Lake Mining District of Canada. Having recently made four major gold discoveries, GBR is now fully funded to drill 90,000 meters through to the year 2020 as part of a very active exploration program. Rob McEwen of McEwen Mining, a Red Lake veteran, is a significant shareholder following a recent $5.7 million investment. To stay up to date, visit greatbearresources.ca. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com now back to our program Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have John Rubino with me once again, one of my favorite people. I must say, John has actually hosted this show a couple of times, and I hope I can get him to do it again sometime in the future because he's really good at it. Uh, John Rubino, of course, uh, well, I don't know if we should spend time going over his bio again because he's been with us so often, but uh, you should check out dollarcollapse.com, dollarcollapse.com. Uh, where uh, you can pick up on John's work and 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 so many other good articles that are there. Uh, just to, just to give you an idea, best of the web. Here are some of the articles that I just looked at before I came on the show. Why economic collapse will precede climate collapse? Well, we'll tell AOC about that, huh? A hundred and fifty billion dollar global corporate bond binge. That's another article. It's the pace and change that kills you from peak prosperity. Uh, fake MAGA. Fake markets, gold seek. I mean, it goes on and on. They're just great, um, just endless numbers of, of great articles. Uh, and then there's a section on the economy, uh, articles, um, deficits surpass one trillion, the CBO and the Hill. Um, Mish Shedlack, who's been a guest on this uh, show, has an article there. Phantom FDI companies aren't invest aren't investing. They're hiding money, so on and so forth. There's just so many good things. Precious metals section there, inflation, deflation, currency wars, cryptocurrencies, lots of good stuff. John, thanks so much for joining us again. Hey, Jay, good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, and you're talking to us, I think, from uh, Washington or someplace like that, not the, <laughs> not not D.C., for goodness sakes, thank God for that, but up in the Northwest, right? No, I'm talking to you from an RV in almost the uh, the most northern part of Washington State. Yeah, so it's Whoa. very pretty here, but there's some technical issues that uh, that I worry about when doing interviews like this. Well, it's coming in loud and clear. You're very close to where I was last weekend in Vancouver then. You're not that far away from B.C., just across some water there, right? So That's one of the big selling points of this part of the country is you can get up to, v- to uh, Vancouver very sure. easily. That's my favorite city in the world, I think. Well, it is lovely. We were just there for the Metals Investor Forum, found a lot of good ideas that I hope to be writing about in my newsletter in the in the near future, uh, along with some of them that uh, you know about, some of them I know you've invested in that have done very well. 
But I want to get onto this topic, uh, one that you just wrote about. You just wrote an article. It's just been posted uh, at dollarcollapse.com. The global debt bubble enters its blow-off stage. Really? Now, you know, we were just talking to Michael Oliver, and Michael said some things that kind of uh, maybe he agrees with what you're just saying. On the other hand, Alan Greenspan just recently said that uh, he thinks it's inevitable just a matter of time before the U.S. currency enters into negative rate territory. But talk to us a little bit about your article, the one that's posted there. Why do you think we're at a blow-off phase? Because that would suggest that we may be seeing, you know, the end of lower rates. Well, um, your listeners know we've been in a a debt bubble for quite a while. And it's been years now that people have been pointing it out and saying it's unsustainable, yada, yada, yada. But uh, lately, very lately... Um, the bubble has entered a new phase that looks an awful lot like a typical terminal blow-off stage of a bubble. Let, let me just give you some stats, just a few stats. Mm, sure. Um, but China, through July, um, increased its total debt by $2 trillion, which is a ton of money for anybody. You know, For yeah. the U.S., that's a, a really aggressive um, debt binge. But for China, which is a smaller, less well-developed country, $2 trillion in a little over half a year is an immense amount of money. And get this, just recently, after all that borrowing, the Chinese government cut bank reserve requirements, mm. which is a way of increasing borrowing and lending going forward. In other words, so they're trying to, to turbocharge a process that's already at um, epic levels. Yeah. Uh, now, in, in Japan, something very different is happening, but it's it's kind of um, symptomatic of the same thing. Um the junk bond market in Japan is being starved by banks that are so desperate for yield that they're lending money, huge amounts of money, to companies that, you know, five years ago they wouldn't have even looked at because they were too risky. But now you've got the banks basically usurping the junk bond market. Yeah. Um, and one last thing, in, in um, a recent week, the global debt market had its biggest issuance on record. Um, even just U.S. companies um, raised seventy-two billion dollars on forty-two mm. deals, and that you know that again is a record amount of money, and it's a huge amount of money. So we're we're ten years into an expansion, which is normally yeah. the point of the cycle when everybody's paying off debt, you know, because they they've been growing for such a long time and cash flow is is rising and they've got extra money they don't know what to do with it so they use it to deleverage this time around we are leveraging more aggressively than ever in human history 10 years into an expansion so uh this has the feel then of a um, a blow off top in a bubble you know when when you get people just um giving up on any pretense of self-control and grabbing one last easy money deal mm-hmm. uh, that that's usually the kind of thing you see just before a bubble bursts mm-hmm. so uh, you know i know there have been a lot of predictions about the bond bubble bursting in, in the last few years and it hasn't happened yet but we're starting to behave in new ways even more egregious ways uh, than in the past few years so it's very possible that this is either the blow-off top or something very close to it. But, John, at the same time, um, central banks are certainly not tightening. They're loosening, as you just pointed out. They're, they're being accommodating beyond belief. Uh, after 10 years, you know, we've had this, this recovery. And normally, uh, they would be tightening. Uh, and yet, the economies of the world are 
not doing very well. I mean, not was you hear a lot of propaganda. You'd hear it uh, from the party in power here in the United States. You turn on Fox, you can't you you can't stop hearing Sean Hannity and all the rest of them talk about how great the economy is. Uh, that's a lot of baloney, I think. I, I think you would agree with me that that's probably a lot of baloney. It's not nearly as good as what it's cracked up to be. At least, uh, do, do you agree with that? Well, there there are a lot of signs under the surface of a slowdown. Yeah, yeah. and that is spooking the central banks of the world because they understand that um, the, a, a financial system this leveraged might not be able to survive. Um, a year mm-hmm. of negative growth worldwide and a 20% drop in global equities and and the other things that normally come with the recession. Um, so they're trying to preempt what they see is a, as a possible recession. You know, it's not happening right now. Like we are not in recession yet, I don't think, but there are signs that we might be headed that way. Uh, the you know the most important of which is that we've been growing for ten years. You know that, yeah. that has never happened before. This is the longest oh. expansion ever. Right. So it's like looking at the oldest person ever. You know they they might not be sick, but there's a pretty good chance they won't be around much longer just because there are limits to these things. And so the the central banks are terrified that we're bumping up against limits that will lead to a a recession that could easily metastasize into a depression. These guys don't know how to stop something like that necessarily. Right. So, so they're trying to stop it before it gets started because it's presumably easier now than it will be a year from now when we're back in a night in a 2008, 2009 scenario where everything's collapsing and nobody knows what's going to happen next. Um, but as with any kind of an addiction, you know, just giving the junkie a bigger shot of the drug, that staves off withdrawal for a little while, but at the cost of a much, much more serious problem down the road. So, it, you know, it's really not clear um, what the effects of a massive round of easing from central banks around the world will be if we're already starting at negative interest rates in Japan, yeah. negative right. interest rates in Europe, um, not that far from zero in the U.S. You know, where do we go from here and how much further down can we go? You know, economists used to talk about the zero bound, which mm-hmm. was, you know, zero interest rates. We can't go below that because that will distort the financial system in, in ways that are unpredictable. Well, Europe and Japan did that. Mm-hmm. And they didn't blow up. So now economists are talking about the effective lower bound. In other words, the the number that's negative that we can't go beyond. But we don't know what that number is because we've never tried to go beyond it. So by God, we're going to try to reach yeah. that number and see what happens. So that's yeah. what happens next time around. We do this immense financial experiment with the entire global economy where we search for the negative interest rate beyond which we can't go. <laughs> That's, you know, Crazy. from a safe distance um, for a, a finance and economics nerd like me, you know, this is fascinating. This is the most yeah. interesting time to be alive ever. But I think for basically anybody else, yeah. this is not going to be fun. When we find that number, and it turns out the central banks have no weapons left. You know, they don't have a thing left to do when negative 2% interest rates don't ignite a boom in the economy. And yeah, when- John, uh, yeah I, I'm not so sure it's going to be fun for any of us nerds either. Actually, uh, I think Alistair pointed out that generally in order to get um, things to turn around in an economy once you're in a recession, you need a decline of about 5% or something like that historically. And we're at arguably 2.5% or something like that now, 2%, 25 depending on which 
which uh, market you're looking at, that would imply a negative two and a half just to get us to where we were before. Who knows? But uh, the other thing I'd like to ask you about, though, is this idea of moral hazard, because it seems to me that stock market players are sitting back and saying, ah, we don't have to worry. Every time the market starts to tank, or as David Stockman says, has a hissy fit, to the rescue comes the Fed. And I can understand that because, as you said, with this leverage in the economy, the equity market starts to spiral out of control on the downside, which uh, Michael's work suggests is more, more likely than not. Then what are they going to do? You know, and if they're scared to death of this market, the equity market, because you know, because people borrow and you know, it's it's leverage to a great extent, and then people have to start selling stuff in order to, you know, to make good, and the, and all of a sudden their their assets are gone, and the fear grips the markets, and you know, it's you can understand why the central banks are doing what they're doing. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, in one sense, you can understand it because they don't want to be this generation's Herbert Hoover. In other words, right. the guy who's on top of the, the system when it blew up and, and be blamed for it for the next 50 years. We still right. know who, who Herbert Hoover is yeah, uh, because he was the guy in charge when the Depression started. Right. Um, and they don't want to be that guy for, forever Trump. after. Yeah, yeah. Donald Trump. Donald Trump, of all people. I mean, he's the greatest, right? So Donald oh, Trump, is going to, he doesn't want to be Herbert Hoover. Of course not. And neither do the guys in charge of the Fed or Treasury or the Senate or any. You know, they, they don't want to be the, that guy. Um, so they're doing whatever they have to do to get through the election cycle and the corporate reporting cycle, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, it, you know, two reasons, though. You, you said something about the stock market being mm-hmm. kind of insouciant right now. Yeah. Um, there, there are two reasons for that. One is that stocks in the aggregate now yield more than bonds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so stocks are becoming a safe haven play because they generate more income than treasuries. <laughs> and uh, so people are less worried about um you know, capital gains with stocks. So the stocks don't go up for the next 10 years. If they're yielding three and a half percent, that's awesome compared to their fixed income portfolio. Sure. Yeah. You know, so that's one thing. The other thing is that when central banks panic, what, what panic means in this world is, yeah, much lower interest rates, but also direct buying of equities with newly created currency. In other words, they'll run the printing press, they'll use it to buy the S&P 500 and bid up the stocks of major U.S. companies. Uh, And, oh, and the third thing is that if they have to devalue the currency really aggressively, in in hyperinflationary economies, stocks usually go way up (laughs) because, you know, the value of a company doesn't change if the value of the currency plunges. So measured in that currency, the mm-hmm. stock price of a given company should go way up, right? Because mm-hmm. we're changing the unit of measurement, but nothing else. Mm-hmm. Uh, so stock markets go up in hyperinflation. So for mm-hmm. those three reasons, you can justify buying equities right now. I don't necessarily think those are great reasons, but they are rationalizations that that you can use in front of your investment committee if you're a portfolio manager or something like that. And, and yeah, plus, I, I, you know, where else do you go? That's the fourth reason. There's nothing else to buy. <laughs> well, you, you know, as measured in, in German Deutschmarks during the hyperinflation in Germany, stocks did go up. It was better than holding Deutschmarks. But uh, still, if the Deutschmark is worthless, what does it really mean? You know, so it's... Um, I guess you want to hold something that's real. Well, that's why it's just you know a currency of value with intrinsic value like silver or gold. 
Yeah, see, that that's the ultimate investment thesis in all this, is that you own real stuff that governments can't make more of when governments are destroying their currency, which ours are pretty much across the board in the developed world. So that means gold, silver, farmland, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that, you, your listeners are very familiar with that thesis and might be kind of frustrated with it because it's so simple. But you know what? Sometimes the simplest answer is the best one. And in this case, I think a big stack of silver coins or um, a smaller stack of gold coins um, is probably the single best thing you can do. You know, you can make a case for for selective shorting of a lot of stocks, but for reasons that we've already covered, that's very dangerous. Uh, Mm -hmm. Although it could be incredibly profitable if past history is any guide, but that's not a... um, a store of value, that's a speculation that might really pay off. So it's a separate category for your finances. But if you're trying to protect purchasing power, you need to get into things that cannot be created in infinite quantities on an electronic printing press by some crazy government. And yeah. that's that, that's a limited selection of stuff with gold and silver at, at the top of the pile right now. Well, John, what's your hunch in terms of uh, U.S. dollar going negative rates? Because uh, you know, you just you just you're suggesting that perhaps we're at a blow-off phase now, uh, that uh, the rates are going to start to climb, possibly. But you know, the other the other argument is that we're seeing. I'm looking at a chart here that shows all of these countries in Europe and including uh, as well as Japan. Uh, you know, in, in negative territory. In fact, there's about four countries all across their yield, their treasury yield curves are they're negative, including Germany. You know, Netherlands, uh, I think uh, there's several of them, Finland. Uh, and, and, and so what I saw that there's something like 94% of all investment-grade bonds in the world are in, denominated in U.S. dollars. So all these people are looking for positive yield, they're going, and you pointed out the stock market is another place to go, and one reason why stocks could keep climbing, one of the reasons they're attractive. But it's also a reason that's pushing interest rates down in the U.S., arguably, right? So if, if foreign governments continue to print more and more money, the economies aren't really going too far, too fast. They're not growing very much at all because there's so much of a debt overhang. The debt is eating up all of, all, all of the wealth, essentially. But So... What's your hunch? What do you think the prospects are? Alan Greenspan says it's inevitable or we're heading towards negative rates, I suppose, in part for that reason. But what what do you think? Well, I I think we're going to try. But, um, you know, as we talked about before, there's that uh, effective lower bound thing that we have to discover. And we'll push interest rates down because we have no choice now. You know, if the economy is slowing down, or if the stock market gets volatile, which it will do if we stop cutting interest rates. Um, We have to continue to cut interest rates for that reason, and we'll keep doing it until we can't anymore. In other words, till the system blows up. Um, But whether it's negative rates or something close to zero remains to be seen for us because the dollar is the world's reserve currency. So the rules are somewhat different. And uh, your interview with Alistair McLeod, I would steer everybody to that because he gives a really good explanation of the mechanism that might stop this thing in its tracks at some Mm -hmm. point. Um, Go ahead, John. Okay, well, I was just going to say, so so we know that secondary currencies like the yen and the euro can see negative rates without instantly blowing up their financial systems. But we don't know 
whether the same rules apply to uh, the global reserve currency. And we're apparently we're going to find out. I mean, this is the kind of thing where, um, you know, like finding out how fast your car can go around a steep turn or something like that. (laughs) Yeah, maybe it's, you know, it might be interesting under some circumstances to know that, but you really shouldn't find out unless you absolutely have to. And that's what we're doing now with the dollar. That's a good analogy. Uh, They don't know because it, but, but uh, unlike, um, unlike somebody who, uh, who's completely rational and sane, they don't want to test it. The central banks, I guess, don't have any choice. Or they feel they don't. They don't know what else to do. Because uh, what they should have done, of course, is just stay the heck out of the markets for years and years ago. We know that as free market people, don't we, John? Well, we should... yeah. I mean, if we, if we could rewind time and go back to 1971... There's a fairly straightforward fix for this is we just stay on the gold standard or the remnants of the gold standard and limit the ability of governments to manipulate currencies and to manipulate their domestic economies. And we would be so much healthier now than we than we are. Uh, But we didn't do that. So we already made the mistakes that are going to destroy this global financial system. Um, So there's only, the only thing that's left is exactly how are we going to do it from here? You know, in the last few years that we have left in this grand experiment with um, money that doesn't mean anything, um, how will we blow it up? And that's what, what's, you know, we're having fun talking about it, but we can't really know the details of it and we can't really know the timing, but it's pretty clear now with what's going on in, um, you know, there are negative yielding junk bonds in Europe <laughs> and 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 the US is almost the US government sector is almost the only um, sovereign debt sector in the world with positive yields almost yes. all the other major bonds right. out there are yielding negative rates now and it, that we got to be pretty close to the end right uh, you know how much further can we go but that's the big question really is the timing of this and 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 it's possible we can go somewhat further but not too much i don't think well, the point is we're addicted, as you, as you drew the analogy earlier. We're addicted, and the only way that we can uh, – it's an addiction. And, it, it, of course, it also has – going off the gold standard has allowed the redistribution of wealth to the people that are closer to the creation of that wealth, namely the, the military-industrial complex, the, the government, uh, and the investment banks. And those uh, – and the central banks and, the, and their uh, cousins are part – their, their children that are the um, – the commercial banks, the big money center banks, and all those people making tons of money. In fact, Alistair was talking a little bit about the dynamics that's driven this gold price higher, and that had to do with the uh, the unwinding of the gold carry trade, in fact, so that the bullion banks, as long as you know U.S. Treasuries were selling at nice positive yields, they could borrow at the gold's interest rate, the, the lease rate of about 1.5%, 2%, uh, sell the gold, use the dollars to buy treasuries at 4%, let's say, or 5 and then leverage up on it and make tons of money. So this sort of thing allowed the redistribution of wealth, I would argue. Booming stock markets, lower rates tend to seem seem to help the people that are rich and hurt the people that actually work for a living and do things and make things for people. So it's a sad commentary on, on Lord Keynes, I suppose, uh, what he's created. Uh, John, with just a couple of minutes left, I'd like to get your ideas on, you know, Mark Carney comes out and suggests that uh, – that the dollar's days uh, are probably numbered. He's, uh, he's calling for a global monetary system to replace the dollar, he said at Jackson Hole. Uh, and and uh, it is, so the economist in, two, in 1988 put out a, a special article, a special issue 
suggesting that by 2018, the uh, we would be looking for a new currency regime of some sorts. And then I look at it, at history, and I see that, uh, you know, through history, the major powers, starting with Portugal back in the 1400s, the time at the time of having uh, the world's reserve currency has been fairly limited, and our time is almost as much as it's as much as a number of those institutions uh, with uh, those countries, I should say. Uh, real quickly, what are your thoughts about the dollar's future and uh, what that might mean? Well, I think none of the fiat currencies are going to survive in their current forms, just because they're so obviously being inflated away and, and just grossly mismanaged in general. Um, the the shape of the monetary reset when it comes is, of course, unpredictable. We could just announce on some Sunday night that uh, henceforth the dollar is just a name for a certain weight of gold. Um, and Unlikely. Gold, yeah, that, that would be the simplest way, but that would mean giving up immense amounts of power. So Jim Rickards says we'll go to the IMF, make them the world's central bank, and then use special drawing rights. But those things are just you know, a currency based on a basket of existing currencies. Yeah. So I'm not John, sure how you derive value from that. All right. We'll have to leave that for another discussion sometime, John. And when you, when you come up with the answer, we'll have you on for sure. We do have to go now. Our time <laughs> is up, unfortunately. Uh, uh, too bad, John, because there's so much more to talk to you about. Next week, folks, uh, David McIlvaney will be with me and Dr. Quentin Henning of Novo Resources, as well as Michael Oliver. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 